The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Good morning. Take open uh, your copy of God's Word, and let's turn to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. You know, I've heard a couple of wise comments. Do I preach anything else besides the book of Exodus? And I have. I have. But we're going to be jumping in the first two chapters of Exodus this morning. You know, when you look at the world today, it's easy to get worried or even to grieve of what you see taking place. It doesn't take you long, whether you flip over the news or even if you flip onto social media, to see that uh, there's a lot of evilness taking place in the world today. Seems to me when you flip on the news, there's a constant repeated message of wars and rumors of wars and sickness and economic uh, forecasts that seem dour. And the list always goes on and on. And it can be even easy for a Christian to be downcast when you look at the world today. It's easy for that to happen. But the reality is, and the truth of the matter is, that since the fall of man, the message of the world has not changed. It's been evil since Genesis chapter 3. For the prince of the power of the air is at work in the world that we live in. This morning, we are going to be looking at Exodus chapter 1 and 2, and I pray that you received an outline so that you can follow along with us and take notes. But in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, what we are going to look at this morning is we are going to be looking at the first days, the first beginning days of, the, of Israel, and we will be later introduced to their deliverer, Moses. Throughout these two chapters, or I'm going to call them little synopsis of, of history lessons throughout the preparation of Israel leaving Egypt and going into the promised land. We are going to see over this, these two chapters a long period of time, roughly a little over 400 years, where we see God preparing each and every step of the way his people for his people to be used as a vessel for his righteousness so they can be a message of how God delivered his people from slavery. They're going to be a message of salvation. But here's what we're also going to see throughout these two chapters, and this is what I want you to pay attention to. We are going to see the hand of God move throughout each and every episode in these chapters. This morning, my prayer for you is that you are going to see the God of promise at work that you're going to see his hand of providence work in the most obscure ways that go against human convention and thought, and yet it is all orchestrated by the hand of God, by the will of God. And that's my prayer for you this morning. Because there are some of you that have walked into this room today or maybe even watching online or listening later that are going through a difficult season in your life. There are some of you in here that maybe are in the midst of a tough situation 
You've been praying, you've been praying, you've been praying and asking the Lord to give you wisdom and guidance, but the way seems a little muddy. The way seems a little foggy. My prayer for you is that your vision of God this morning is gonna grow bigger and bigger and bigger. That you're gonna have a big God theology moment this morning. Because what we're gonna see, like I said, is God, God's hand moving throughout every single detail. And at times, what you're gonna look at this morning is that you can only take a step back into worship because only he alone, Yahweh, could do this. And so that's my prayer for you this morning is for you to see God's hand through the midst of these two chapters. We are gonna walk through five points that are gonna walk us through and help us to see God's, God moving throughout the history of Israel and preparing for us to meet this man named Moses. So I pray again that you received an outline so you can walk with me through God's word. But before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time together. So if you will, bow your heads with me. Eternal Lord and Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the day that you have given us. Lord, this is the Lord's day the day you've commanded your people to come and to worship. Lord, thank you for the singing of songs that remind us of your, the truth of who you are and what you've done. Father, we pray that as we walk through the book of Exodus, teach us. Father, move within our hearts deep affections for Christ. Convict us of sin. And Father, encourage us in our walk with you. Father, may you increase and I decrease. And it's in Christ we pray, amen. Let's look at our first point together. The promise fulfilled the growth of a people. Look with me in Exodus chapter one, verses one through seven. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each in his own household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, and then Joseph died, and all of his brothers and all the generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. In the first seven verses of Exodus, what we find here are the descendants of Jacob, who if you know your, the, the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 35, he's renamed Israel. And out of Genesis, we see the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel expand and grow. And there's a connection here from Genesis 46, where we see Joseph, who became prime minister of Israel, allows his brothers to come back because there's a famine in the land. And there he provides for his brothers. And that's where we see, and that's where we are in Genesis 1, 1 through 7. But even though I give you that brief history lesson for just a moment, I want you to catch a major piece in the puzzle. Look with me in verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Israel was obedient to the biblical mandate in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28, to be fruitful and to multiply. The tribe of Israel, that started with just 12 tribes, grew from 70 people here in Exodus chapter 1, and over a couple of hundred-year period, grew into over a million people. A million people. And this 400-year period shows the blessing and the favor of God, growing them to these, just these 12 tribes into a great nation. 
And this is a historical but also a significant point for you to understand. But more importantly, I want you to see the hand of God in verse 7. Because this all came about through God's promise that he told to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12 because I want you to see this in God's word. Genesis chapter 12. And as you're turning there, I want you to listen with me in verses one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I, God, will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed shall be blessed. Abraham was chosen by God to be the redemptive agent of God's grace and mercy through faith alone. When you look at the call of Abraham, you need to see a few points of the hand of God, how he is preparing the people even now to where we are in the context of Exodus chapter one. First of all, see where Abraham is leaving everything behind to follow Yahweh. There's a purpose with that. The second thing we need to see is Abraham trusts God He trusts in God to provide for the land, but he also trusts in the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, that there are going to be families, descendants that are going to come from him. And this preparation of leaving the land is, uh, if you know a little bit more about Exodus, is going to be the future promised land. But three, here's what I want you to see. God chose Abraham. He chose Abraham to be distinct in this world for his glory. God chooses people like we saw with Adam, like we saw with Noah, and now with Abraham, to be set apart, to be a faithful people, and to walk with God. Abraham obeyed the will and the command of God to go, and he went. And remember, this comes off the heel of Genesis chapter 11, where if you look over just one page, it is the story of the Tower of Babel. There you know that people wanted to build this tower to be able to get to God, and God destroyed their plans, and there dispersed the people. When you look at Genesis chapter 12, technically this is a season of judgment for people, but here Abraham is called out. Abraham's call is a gift of God's salvation. And because of Abraham comes Isaac, as we see in Genesis chapter 21, who later has a son named Jacob. And Jacob has 12 tribes of Israel, and this brings us full circle to Exodus chapter one of God fulfilling his promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, growing a people into a mighty nation to display the glory of God. But here's the thing. Though it can be subtle to read over verse seven, and you may be thinking, Kenny, why the history lesson? This history lesson is showing you the power of God, the faithful hand of God, keeping the word he promised to Abraham, showing himself to be found faithful in the eyes of Abraham, but also in the eyes of Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis and Exodus. What we see here is the faithfulness of God. This is not a historical point for you to pull out of your back pocket for Bible trivia. No, it is for you to see God kept his word. He was faithful to his word, faithful to his covenant with Abraham. God was faithful to fulfill his promise to grow from 70 people, did you hear me a second ago, to over a million people, a million people. God blessed the women to have babies. He blessed their wombs. 
He remembered his covenant with Abraham and Jacob, which is one of the major themes in the book of Exodus. And there the growth of the nation we see take place in Exodus chapter 1. But more than anything, what you need to see is the faithful hand of God. Is the faithful hand of God, which leads us through God's faithfulness to our second point. Look with me in Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. Our second point is affliction to display the glory of God. Listen along with me. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he did to his people, and behold, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. But they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pythium and Ramses, verse 12. But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. How do you see the faithful hand of God working in the life of his people? And here in verses 18 through 14, he puts them in slavery. How do you see God's faithfulness in this? Moses here is showing us, and again, another historical jump. He's writing over this transition period from Joseph there that we see from verses 7 to 8. And a change of power is taking place. There's a new Pharaoh in town, and Pharaoh saw a problem. He saw a problem. As the people increased, Pharaoh began to put Israel under hard conditions. He began to made them build cities. He treated them harshly. They became slaves. Israel is in trouble when you read the first half of verses 8 through 14. And you have to ask the question, how could this be? Was this a part of God's plan? Yes, it was. Again, I invite you to turn back to Genesis chapter 15, just a couple of pages over from Genesis chapter 12. Let's go back to Genesis 15. Here is the famous passage when God makes a covenant with Abram before he is renamed Abraham. Look with me in verses 1 through 3. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man should not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look at the heaven, toward heaven, and the number of the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and accounted to him as righteousness. Look with me down in verse 12. And the sun was going down. A deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful to great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, 
know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And there'll be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring the judgment on the nation and they will serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So there it is. Interesting turn of events. We see blessing was going to come out of Abram. We see that he is going to have an heir, and then we know that to be Isaac, and more will come out of Isaac. Again, we go back to Exodus 1 to see the tribe of Israel grow. But here we see Israel is going to face serious turmoil, serious turmoil. But I want you to see the connections here from Genesis chapter 15 into Exodus 1, and I want you to to write these down in your outline. First of all, what you see in Exodus chapter 1 verse 11, and there in Genesis chapter 15 verse 13, you see the word affliction. They're the same words in the Hebrew. The affliction that Moses is writing about is slavery. And what we find here is an interesting word picture starting in verses 7 through 11 in Genesis chapter 15, where you see that where Moses, excuse me, that Abraham is commanded to split these animals in half, and there you see a smoking pot go in between them. But what you find is that there were birds that come down on the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Interesting thing that, that Moses writes there. But what we see is that those birds are a word picture, are an example to us that that is going to be the affliction. It's an example and a picture of Egypt being the taskmaster over Israel. It's a word picture there of affliction going to take place. Jesus actually uses it in Matthew chapter 24 when he's describing the end times when he says, wherever there's a carcass there, the vultures will gather. The same idea of the birds of the prey coming down. The second thing you need to see in verses 8 through 14, and you can feel it, is that there's this pregnant feeling there that something must give. Something has to happen. And Moses and you, the reader, know that God is the only solution for the problem. Though he said to Abram, your people are going to be enslaved, and here his word again is coming true, there you know that they're not going to be left to themselves. They're not standing there helpless. You can see God's faithfulness even in the midst. Even though God's name is not mentioned in 8 through 14, there you know he's not absent. He's not absent in this, again, this historical part in the story of Israel. He is going to deliver his people, and you can see it. And in three, what you need to see flat out, plain as can be, what Pharaoh has done is sin. Is sin. The evil within his heart, he saw a problem. And so he took matters into his own hand and he enslaved the people of Israel. Yes, God had an eternal purpose. And this is one of the many building steps that God is going to use for Israel to display the glory of God and to be a vessel for the salvation of the Lord. And though this is a hard building block to read through, nonetheless, God ordained it to be. God ordained it to be. But here is the reality, an application right before our very eyes. Pharaoh does does something that we, you and me, the Christian, is tempted to do. When a problem arises in your own life, do you try to do what Pharaoh does? And you try to maneuver it, manipulate it, massage it in a way so that you can try to wrestle with it and try to uh, take care of it, control it according to your own human convention and terms? 
It's a question to ask yourself. Instead of bringing it to God, the situation that you may be in, do you try to do what Pharaoh does not you take matters into your own hands? Some of you in here, there may be a sin that you're dealing with, a grievous sin in the eyes of God, and you don't want to acknowledge it before the holy God, and yet you know that's exactly what you do, but instead you sear your conscience. You grieve the Holy Spirit, and you don't confess it and repent it, and you again just want to maneuver it, put it in a place and a position where you can easily get along with it, and it becomes everyday life for you of walking in sin. Ladies and gentlemen, do not be like Pharaoh. Because if you are not bringing your anxieties, your issues, even if you are struggling in sin to God, you are on a solo ride of destruction. You are. It's going to unfold right before your very own eyes. So you have to repent. You have to flee these things, as Paul tells to Timothy. Run to his word, pray, and fear the Lord and not man. Because that's what we see in our very next point. Look with me in our third point. That the fear of the Lord is what God desires for man. Look with me now in verses 15 through 22. Interesting way Moses writes this. Look what he writes. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them whose name was Shapira and the other Pua, and when, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women... See them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives, here it is, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, and they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with them, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. There it is, God's faithfulness, right there in, that, in verse 20. Because the midwives feared God. Again, there it is, mentioned twice. He gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. When you have a core set of convictions... It's very hard for you to compromise, isn't it? It is. Recently, I was watching on Netflix the movie uh, The Darkest Hour, you know, the story about Winston Churchill. And I love Churchill. I love how he's a man of conviction. But if you know about that movie, you know, it's a time when he became prime minister during the World War II. And there, what you find in that movie is that Churchill was a convictional man. Even people in his own war cabinet were trying to get him to make peace with Germany to compromise. But if you know your history, or even if you've seen the movie before, you know that he didn't. He didn't buckle an inch. And that is what we see here with these midwives. They had conviction. They have the fear of the Lord, and they, do not, they did not obey Pharaoh's edict by killing male Hebrew children. What Pharaoh is trying to do is to stop a future army from being built. That's what we see here. These males one day can fight. And so what he's trying to do is thwart what, the, what they can possibly do. And so he stops it. And he approves of the killing of, of these infant babies. And what a horrible 
degree that he put out. What horrible sin that he puts out for these midwives to do. You do not need to take verses 15 and 16 lightly. What you need to know is Pharaoh is anti-God. He's a slave to sin. And he is trying to crush God's blessing of the being fruitful to multiply. He's trying to, to crush the promise God had with Abraham that descendants will come from him as numerous as stars in the sky. He thinks he's doing, he's fixing his own problem, but in fact, he's just being a tool for God to display his glory as we will see later in the book of Exodus. But ladies and gentlemen, quite frankly, though we see the destruction of life here in verses 15 through 22, we see it even today in 2024. Satan has used many strategies to destroy life, and it's the same thing we can even find today with the abortion movement. The pro-choice movement, if whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, it is killing innocent life. You look at the advocates out there of the pro-choice abortion movement, their conscience has been eroded away. And ladies and gentlemen, it's the same thing we find here, what Pharaoh is doing. Recently, I was on social media and saw this pro-life supporter protesting and praying outside an abortion clinic. And it was fascinating that the doctor of that clinic came out to talk to him. And you could see his face was even contorted a little bit. And you could even hear in his voice that there was an erosion of morality. His very own voice. It was sadistic. And that's what we find here. When Pharaoh's command to kill innocent lives. Jesus in John 8.34 says, Everyone who, is, who sins is a slave to sin. And ladies and gentlemen, Satan is going to use everything in his arsenal to destroy life. He is. But the same application can be said that he's going to do everything in his arsenal and everything in his power to destroy the Christian witness and character. One commentator rightly said this, Pharaoh had two strategies for preventing God's people from growing and being a blessing, slavery and death. And these are the same weapons Satan uses when he tries to destroy a human being and even a Christian. So how can we keep watch? How can we keep guard? How can we not fall into sin and not be a slave to sin? The only way you can do it is have the fear of the Lord, the fear of God. And how can you do this? Let's see what the Hebrew wives did. First of all, we need to see a couple of things. The Hebrew women, they desired to be found faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Though the law was not given yet, that doesn't come until Exodus chapter 20, they feared God, and they feared what God would do to them, not in the life that they are currently living, but in the life to come. They were fearful, like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, when he said, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. They feared the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They feared Yahweh. That's who they fear. The same fear that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. The same fear that Daniel had. And not obeying the king's edict, but continuing to pray. Remember the apostles in Acts chapter 5? They're in front of the Jerusalem council, and they were told, quit preaching the gospel. Remember what they said? We must obey God rather than men. And that is what we need more than anything in this world today from fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And you can look even in our own recent history over the last couple of decades, men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who stood up against the Nazi regime and would not back down. Or look even during the English Reformation, men like Thomas Cramner and Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, who even their standing for the truth of God's word and who he is and what he has done is memorialized on the campus of Oxford. Their plaque says to the glory and the grateful commemoration of his servants who near this spot near their bodies to be burned and being witness to the sacred truths to which they affirmed and maintained against the heirs of the church of Rome and rejoicing to them that it was not only given not only to believe in Christ but also for the sake of Christ. That's what we need in this day and age. So how does one fear God? And I has one fear the Lord? Write these down with me. Number one, the fear of the Lord can only come by the knowledge, through the knowledge of the Holy One. It has to come through knowledge. The first step to do this is through saving faith. You cannot, because our minds are depraved, and that we are not seeking after God if you are not a believer, your heart does not want to know God. We see that in Romans chapter 3. All fall short of the glory of God. But what we know in this first point here is that we have to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And when we believe in Jesus Christ, our heart is transformed from a heart of stone to flesh. And the old is put off and the new begins. And our heart is being renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there, that's where we start with our knowledge of the Holy One, and, the, and that begins our walk with the fear of the Lord. But when you think about the fear of the Lord, so often fear, when you think about it, it's in a negative sense or a negative connotation always goes with it. When we think of fear today, it's, also, it's always going to be intertwined with anxiety or worry. But that's not what the Bible says. It is a reverent fear, a humble and holy fear before God. The second thing we need to see is that when you the knowledge of the holy takes place, the fear of the Lord then is going to give you wisdom. As it says in Proverbs 9, 10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what is wisdom? It is seeing everything through the lens of who God is and what he has done. That is the fear of the Lord. And this is what is needed more now than ever. Because in the third thing, what flows out of wisdom is the fear of the Lord is obedience to his word. Is obedience to his word. Reading it is a good and godly thing, but obeying it is what is required of the Christian, being obedient to God's word. Because the more you obey, the more you're walking in righteousness, the more you are being sanctified by the power of God's word, the power of his spirit, there you're able to recognize God's character, his nature, and your vision of God gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And there, you begin to have a, a whole, uh, excuse me, a meek spirit. You're humble before God because you realize what you have been saved from. And again, you have to be obedient to his word. And the fourth thing is this, fear and faithfulness go hand in hand. I know that we can go through seasons of life that are tough, I know that we can go through seasons where we feel like we are constantly in the valley of the shadow of death. 
But the fear of the Lord is always going to be connected to faithfulness because that's what matters in the long haul. Men and women of God being faithful to him. And if you fear the Lord, he is going to give you the power to be found faithful in his sight. Second, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Write this first one down. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Consider the things he has done for you. When you look out on this side of the cross and you realize what God has saved you from, from his wrath because of sin, you're going to have a holy and reverent fear before the Lord. The two go hand in hand. And that's what we see from these Hebrew midwives. A fear of the Lord is, is driving to see the love, God's love that he had in Christ. And in turn, you're going to be a holy people, a meek people, a poor in spirit people, but also a confident people all in the Lord. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 13 says, For the Lord spoke to me thus with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that the people call conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread of them. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. That's what we see is required of the Christian. The question to ask is, do you fear God? Do you desire to obey his word? When you begin to be put in a hard place, a lot of times fear begins to rise up within your heart. And a lot of times what those fears do is it shows where our affections lie, where our allegiances are being placed. Do you fear God? Is your heart toward God cold? Where are you storing up treasures? In earth or in heaven? As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20, chapter 6. And this is a serious question you need to ask, not for my sake, but for yours, as you were seeking to please the Lord and honor him with your life. So do you fear God? Because the fear of God is required of man. Look with me in our fourth point. Look with me in Exodus chapter 2 as we continue to see the fear of the Lord now move into our introduction into a man named Moses. Look how important our fourth point that God provides the Redeemer. Look at me starting in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child... She hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took, him to, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe the river. While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds. And she sent her servant woman and she took it and she opened it 
and she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is the one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister, Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse, nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took him and the chi- took the child, and she nursed him. What an amazing account to read in Exodus chapter 2. It's amazing to see how in God's word, how specific he is, isn't it? just absolutely blows me away when you look at our first point, to see what he writes in here. Think about it in the context of Scripture, how detailed our Lord is. Even if you go further into the book of Exodus, when you see God giving the law to Israel, it is amazing to see, for example, even the ceremonial laws, how everything is written down precisely so that the people can worship the Lord through the sacrifices. Even when you look at the building and the construction of the temple, to the fabric, to the gold rings that are going to be placed on the fabric, everything is to be put in its exact place. Even when you look at Noah, for example, he needed everything for the ark, down to the dimensions of what was going to be built. And God provided it there. God provided it there. And that's what we see here in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. Moses, as he's writing this, is pointing out these details, these provi- this providence of God and these, and these first days on this earth. It's amazing to write and to see this. Look with me in verses 1 and 2. I want you to catch this detail. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, and she conceived and she bore a son. Let me stop there. Moses is descended from the Levites. And if you know what comes later after their time in Sinai, the Levites are in charge of the spiritual worship for Israel. They're the ones who are going to lead the people in the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial laws, and the praise of Yahweh. But here, Moses is descended from those people. Moses is from the line and is going to help people to worship Yahweh, which that's exactly what he's going to do as they go to the promised land. You catch that? He is going to be an intercessor, a mediator between Israel and God. And here we see that he is descended from that line. It is amazing how Moses wrote the detail to reveal that to us there in the house of Levi. How God chose Moses before the foundation of the world to have his parents come and be descended from the Levites. And there they are going to be a people, a priesthood of people to lead others to the Lord. It's amazing how precise he is. And the point can even be made for you to see how God chose you if you are a believer, the elect people of God before the foundation of the world. For you to see how through God's choosing a specific house of Levi, a specific woman whose name is Jacobed and his father to conceive and to bore a son. This is not by chance this is not an episode of The Love Boat. This is an actual, that's pretty funny. Get it? With the ark and putting the baby in the basket. Anyway, I thought it was funny. Um, I'm praying for you in the new year. But, but here we see, 
God's hand of provision. The second thing we need to see is that Moses' mother, like I said, her name was Jacobed, she feared God. She feared God. Don't miss that point. She is just like the Hebrew midwives. And there, she uses human intuition, but more importantly, she trusts in the providence and the hand of God to provide for her baby. Now, the world would say, this is crazy. No way this could take place. But yet you see Jacobed trust in Yahweh. The word basket in the Hebrew is tabah, which is actually found in Genesis chapter 6 and 8. When, Mo, excuse me, when Noah is building the ark, the word is translated ark. Moses is put in a tiny ark. God protected Noah and the ark, and God here protects Moses in this tiny version of the ark. And then three, notice the other thing that takes place. Miriam, his sister. Now this is surprising because I know that probably my sister would put that basket going the other direction like a good sibling does. But here we see Miriam, a wonderful older sister, care for her brother. And not only that, look what happens. Pharaoh, the princess, or Pharaoh, the daughter, sees this and then Miriam pops out. Hey, I know somebody who can take care of this baby, and it's my mom, and it's the baby's mom. And by the way, the mom's going to get paid to take care of her own baby. Isn't that amazing? You can't make this up that God orchestrated all this for his glory and for, again, remember the key point, because Moses is going to be the deliverer of Israel. I know that there, and we have to be careful with our theology because there is a balance of human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. But here, you cannot not see it. That's Proverbs 16.33 reminds us that the lot is cast into his lap, but every decision is from the Lord. There is no doubt that God guided this ark to the hands of this princess. For the daughter of Pharaoh to adopt a Hebrew baby is absolutely amazing absolutely amazing to see. And again, it shows you the hand of God not only working through carrying this ark down the river, but it also shows you God's hand working in the heart of someone who's related from Pharaoh, someone who wants Hebrews killed. Because she adopts the Hebrew. She even recognizes it. Which also shows you like Proverbs chapter 2 verse 1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it to whomever, wherever he wills. Ladies and gentlemen, if there's something taking place in your life that you are tempted to think that God has no idea of what is going on and you think that God is absent, I want you to look at this early account of Moses' life. And this should be a conviction for you to be convicted of sin, for you, not, for you to see that God is not absent. He is active then and now in your life. But it also should be an encouraging word to you. The God working in the most unconventional human ways against human faculties to be able to provide for Israel. God is working even now in your life for his name to be glorified and for your good. There's some of you who have been praying for, have been praying for something for many years and you feel like you're just in a, a season of drought. Keep on. There are some of you who are in a difficult situation, maybe with a family member or friend. Keep on. Because as John Piper said, every day in every circumstance, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, but you might be aware of only three of them.
though the path of life doesn't make sense, do not fear. Be obedient to, to God, fear him, because orchestrating his divine will to bring himself glory and again for your good. Because look with me in verses 11 through 21. Moses does another transition period, and here we see that he's grown up in verse 11. And he goes out, and there he looked on the burdens of his Egyptian brethren. And there something happens. He commits murder. He struck an Egyptian and tries to hide him. And there he goes out the next day, and even the Hebrews who knew what happened even call him out. They grumble and says, who made you a prince and a judge over us? And there we see in verse 14 through 15, he flees. He leaves Egypt. The details that unfold for us as Moses is getting older is something, again, not for us to easily pass over. Moses now identifies for the Hebrew people. He sees the sufferings of his people, and there he commits murder, and is now, his life is now identified with the Hebrews. God has been working in his heart. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 even references this specific timeline in the life of Moses, of God preparing Moses to be, even be the redeemer. In Hebrews chapter 11, you don't have to flip there, but you can write this down. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, the writer of Hebrews even talks about this specific season that Moses was in. He considered the reproach of Christ there in verse 26, greater than the wealth of the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. God was preparing the way of salvation. And even though Moses committed an egregious act, God was working in his life so that he would be prepared to be the deliverer. All things were working. And even think about it. Even when Israel grumbled, like they did here, it's preparing him for a time when future Israelites are going to grumble at him when they were on the way to the promised land. And all of this are a preparation for him to lead Israel. And ladies and gentlemen, the same can be said for you. God uses what you think are the most obscure circumstances in your life that are shaping you and sanctifying you so that you can glorify God with the life that he has given you. Think about it. All of us in this room can replay, go back on the tape and think about, wow, I can't believe that happened to me. Yet, and somehow, in some way, God has used that to, to sanctify you and to grow you. And so that you can use that as a way to minister to others in the Christian life. 12 years ago, last Sunday, my sister took her own life. No one in my family knew it. We had no idea what was going on in my sister's heart. But I'm going to be transparent with you. Though it breaks my heart even to think about it now, yet God used it so that I can minister to you. In the same circumstances with you in this room, thinking right now about the Holy Spirit, something in your own mind. Think about our own Pastor Grant with the death of his father and how some way in God's providence allowed that to happen to shape, man, to shape Grant to the man he is today. Circumstances that are puzzling, yet in the providence of God, we see it work for his glory and for our good. And that's what we see 
there in Exodus chapter 2. Because remember, this is coming off the heels of Genesis chapter 50. When Joseph even says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And even though this is a, a very interesting time, these early days of Israel, God is working everything for Israel's good. Briefly, look with me in, in our fifth point. The end of chapter two, here God remembers. God remembers. And during those many days, verse 23, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. I want you to catch something. Exodus chapter one, verses one through seven, and now here at the end of chapter two, end, they begin and end with God. The people of Israel are not to be identified with slavery. They are to be identified with Yahweh. I want you to catch that. And here, what we see at the end of chapter two, and I want you to see how God, with four verbs, encapsulates what's about to take place and for you to see his faithful hand working in the life of Israel. It says God heard, God remember, God saw, and God knew. God heard. The people were crying out for God to deliver them. Ladies and gentlemen, briefly, this is a point for application for you to not think that God does not hear your prayers. He does. Especially in, this, in seasons of suffering. It's amazing to see how God can, he, he will always hear your prayers. God commands us to pray. And here we see that's what Israel did. They cried out to God to deliver them. The second thing is God remembered. God remembered. This is not Moses' way of saying that this is just new news to Yahweh. No. The word here remembered in the Hebrew is zakar, which means that God is moving into action. He's moving into action. God remembered his Abrahamic covenant. He knows that when the animals there in Genesis 15 were split, it symbolized if he was not faithful, may he be like those animals. But God is faithful, just like we see with the growth and expansion of his people. And there we see the faithful hand of God, remember, moving into action to save his people. And then we see God saw and he knew. And here, when you look at it in the Hebrew, this is where God is making his presence known to Israel. Douglas Stewart, a Hebrew commentator on the book of Exodus, says this. The best reading of these last few verses says it this way. God looked on them and made himself known to them. And God was initiating the process of deliverance and the circumstances of both Moses and Israel because they were about to change. Implicitly, what was happening here is whether or not he, is he going to let his people suffer and to go unnoticed? No. He sees it. And the true, omnipotent, and loving covenant God with his people sees their sufferings, and now he begins to move. He's watched over their hardship, and he is not going to let it continue without a good purpose and result. Just like in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is on the move. And that's what we see here at the end of Exodus chapter 2. As we close and enter our time, Exodus chapter 1 and 2 provides for us 
a timeline of over a couple of hundred years that what we see is the hand of God working in the life of Israel. We see even with Pharaoh, of him being a tool of God. And we see it, how Moses writes it, of his own birth narrative. The hand of God is always at work. And we see it here in the book of Exodus. And it's amazing to see how this is just one of the many pavers in the road that is gonna prepare us to one day meet the one, Jesus. As it says in Luke chapter 19, of his own departure, which is the word Exodus. And how he is the greater Moses. But ladies and gentlemen, do not for one second think that God is absent, that he is silent. Because as we can see throughout Exodus chapter one and two, God is in the details of everything, working out 10,000 things, like Piper said, for his glory and for your good. See throughout these two chapters how the holy and sovereign God, only he could orchestrate all these things and make them be. Nothing goes unnoticed by Yahweh, then or even now. So my prayer for you is that if today is the first time you've heard about Christ, today maybe is the first time you want to know him and you feel the spirit moving in your heart for you to come to saving faith, come. Don't waste another minute. Come to Christ today. But, but for those in here who have been walking with the Lord for some time, my prayer for you is that your vision of God just got greater and greater and greater. And that you would see how glorious and holy and magnificent our God is. The God of the Exodus and the God of today and forevermore. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you just amazed to see your hand at work. Father, thank you for the grace you have given to us this day, for us to see how holy and majestic you are. Lord, I pray for those in here that have been walking with Christ for a short time or, or a long time. Lord, I pray their vision of God and their, their view of God will just grow greater and greater. Father, I pray for those in here who seem lost, who seem distraught, that they will see that through these details of the Exodus account, your, glor your glorious grace and mercy. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for guiding us even now. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website capitalcommunitychurch.com.